Howdy friends, what's going on? I hope you've been well. Here we are again, another week, another episode. For new listeners, my name is Simon Hill. I'm the host of the Plant Proof Podcast, qualified physiotherapist, and I'm currently finishing my master's in nutrition. Each week on this show, I sit down with super cool folks from all walks of life, from all over the world, doctors, nutritionists, athletes, people who have overcome chronic illness, etc., to have conversations that can help us become more mindful and conscious of the way that we live. This week's guest is Australian musician Ziggy Alberts. If you follow my stories on Instagram, you will know I'm a huge fan of Ziggy's work. I've been listening to his music for years, and it's been a real privilege to watch him grow from afar. He's the perfect example of someone who is set on using their growing platform and reach to really better the world. And while he no doubt has an incredible singing voice, I think his voice and overall message off stage is just as powerful. So I'm sure you're going to love his story and this episode. Before we jump into the episode, a few little updates from my end. I know you guys like restaurant tips. If you are from Sydney or visiting Sydney, go and check out Alibi. It's a vegan restaurant down in Woolloomooloo. I was lucky enough to taste their new menu a few weeks ago, and it's absolutely delicious. It's a great spot to go on a date to. It's super quiet, and the service is not too rushed. So if you check out Alibi, let me know what you think. Now, last week, I mentioned I wanted to talk a bit about the Chris Kresser and Joel Kahn debate on the Joe Rogan podcast. I'm thinking I'll save it for a video format on social media as it's quite complex, so it may be hard to follow on the pod and I don't want to overwhelm any of you. So keep a look out for that on Instagram in the next few weeks at plant underscore proof. All right, time to hand things over to Ziggy Alberts. Friends, I'll see you on the other side. Do you see the ways that we are grown up? I don't like it at all. Do you see the ways that we are gone too far? Drifting off of our course. And do you see the ways that we let plastic cover the ocean like snow? But snow it always melts with the seasons change in the summer so the months go water one was all before oh Siggy Alberts, let's do this. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. How are you today? Yeah, good, good, mate. It's, uh, it's awesome to have you here in, in Bondi and to be able to finally connect to, to record this podcast. It's one that I've, I've been wanting to to do for a while now. So thank you for coming. No, thank you for your patience. It's been an absolutely turbulent several months with this tour coming to an end just a couple of weeks ago and I'm off to Europe in a week, yeah, Monday, wow. the next Monday coming. So to do this is um, a really sweet timing because I won't be back in the country for four months. Non-stop. So how, how many shows did you just do? We did 37 across New Zealand and Australia. Uh, I think it was 37 in the end. Wow. What, what was that experience like? I mean, before that, how much touring or how many shows had you sort of done in a row? Well, touring is a really interesting one because there's certainly times where you'll do more then 37 shows like there was one tour i did which i would not do again it was like 52 shows and that was five months of touring and it was just grueling and i wouldn't do that again but 
it really depends on the flow of your team and how many rows, you know, how many shows you're doing in a row, how many nights off you have in between those shows. It's kind of a process of there's so many, so many different factors that affect if those three weekends, you know, there's three weekends we have three shows in a row. If they're hard, there's so much around transit, flight, the issues you face at shows, um, how your health is. And so if you have a good little pattern and good routine, this tour was was undoubtedly one of the best. Like I came off tour and I wasn't dreading being on tour again. It was kind of like, okay, I need a bit of a rest, but I'm excited to tour, which is good because I have a lot of yeah, touring yeah. ahead of me. And I guess that's a, a credit to which you just sort of spoke to, but your whole team and how everything came together, which later on in this conversation, I want to talk a lot about what it means to be an independent musician. But just sort of top line, you know, what was what were the logistics like of organising all of these shows, you know, essentially yourself, you know, your family? Oh, I mean, top line, again, we'll get into it later, but it's the logistics are huge for, for you to come out and do a show by yourself, you know, as an independent musician and being a solo artist on top of it, for you to come and do a show by yourself in some of the sizes we we're doing, it's internal teamwork, it's tour teamwork, it's third party, whether that be the security companies who are there, the lighting people that you bring in for particular shows. It's like to get one person on stage, I can't imagine trying to get more. Getting one person on stage is hard enough. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm sure you're you're now, you know, much, much better equipped, I guess, as a group going forward for for future touring, having done 34 odd shows. Absolutely. You just you're well and a well oiled machine and in, in terms of your there's less and less surprises, which is really good. You see more and more things and you kind of start to learn the questions that you need to ask. And after, like you said, after, you know, the 30 plus shows we just did, you you are unbelievably prepared comparatively, you know, compared to even the first five shows you do, the next five shows you learn more. And by the last five shows, we just learn as much as you possibly can ever on tour. So it's a constant learning experience, but that's what makes it exciting. And was there, in terms of challenges, you know, just in, in that previous touring that you did was there any just like rip your hair out moments where you as a team you're like god how are we going to handle this yes oh my goodness one like i'll just touch on one because there was several but let's just say there was one in a particular previous tour in australia where we the van the van got crashed and the van had everything and when i say everything i mean like 15 surfboards three tents eight hike mats six speakers two subs all the merch six guitars all of our sleeping bags, all of our personal stuff, you know, have many wetsuits. Like it was, it was packed to the absolute, from a seven meter van kind of thing. Right. And when we, yeah, when the vehicle got crashed, you know, two o'clock in the morning by no one's fault, but when that happened and the vehicle essentially written off, which was also my home ad, and you've still got, you know, I don't know, 10 shows to go. And it just been one of those tours. We kind of looked at each other and just like looked up at the skies. I'm like, what? So how did, how did the van crash? So it was a late evening on in the southwest and when you are driving, you just pretty much should just avoid driving during the, in the southwest late at night. And so I managed to really fantastically um, have a roo jump out and it just, it just, you just get blindsided in terms of you. There's no, there's no amount of attention that you can avoid some of those situations. And when that happened, I mean, luckily the car could get driven enough to be off the road so to speak but after that it was um look it was the whole front of the car got replaced kind of thing and it certainly wasn't getting replaced in the amount of time we had left and so you start and we're driving back to perth we're getting another van buddies are bringing their cars up from different spots so we can just get the amount of gear we had it took three separate vehicles to literally get it from a to b from the where we where the van stopped you know it was like that that well strategically packed it was unbelievable but we got through it and i think 
there is only so much you can take away from those situations. There's some very obvious hiccups that have happened across various tourings and different processes. Now they're in place. And some of that's just experience. Some of that's the amount of people we have on the tour. More isn't necessarily always better, but the quality of each person's role, how much they get to just focus on that and be dedicated to that opposed to being you know, a handyman in every different place. But I think with some of those moments, you just do have to just accept it and, and try and laugh where you can and get some sleep and move on. Yeah, so so getting from show to show, is it is it all done by car? Like, or, you know, you're playing in, in Sydney and in Melbourne and everywhere. We, were there also flights happening as well? So on the last tour, we drove from Sunshine Coast to Adelaide. So we did that drive and did all you know, a majority of the shows along that along that period of time. And the last five shows, just simply by logistics, we did fly the last five shows. So you have a, a balance of both. It is in Australia fairly easy to fly with music gear because of like particularly as a musician, as an Australian musician, because there's an association that will help you with your bags um, through you know a certain flight company. And so that's like incredible. But as for Europe um, coming up, will be the first time we have a sleeper bus a bus with bunk beds where we're not flying or driving ourselves internally. And I think that's going to be a game changer because last time um, my videographer and I were the only two members old enough on the team to be able to allowed to drive. Yeah. Wow. And so we were so driving everything. We were driving from, you know, like I remember one drive from Berlin to some out, you know, out there town in France. And that was like a 14 hour day kind of thing. And you're doing that and playing shows. And so it just wasn't a remotely sustainable model. And that's sometimes a luxury you cannot afford. Is that you have to do that grind. But when you now get the sleeper bus or when you get the team, that that where each person is really great in their role and really cares about their role, you appreciate it so much yeah. more. And, and I guess it allows you to concentrate and put your energy into, into your performances. Absolutely. That's something that I probably didn't value enough. I definitely feel was really proud of almost like my busking, I would say like working class, like do everything myself or do everything with the people I tour with really liked, didn't like, uh, ever want to be in like a inverted commas artist position where you walk up on stage, but you actually talk about, you have to grow up a bit and become a little more mature. It's not possible to try and help out on all those levels and put on a good show every night, particularly at these sizes now. It's just simply, it's just not necessarily in a human being. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, and some of these, the uh, festival hall you played at yep. in Melbourne, was like, it was like 5,000 people. It was, yeah, 5,500 people. It was by <laughs> close to two times as big a show as I've ever done before, you know. And that takes, you know, that takes. What did that feel like when you first walked? Can you remember first walking out onto that stage in front of 5,500 5, people? I had a really good pre-show in terms of you have your little rituals, so to speak, like things that you do that you know make you feel comfortable for a show. And I just, the gym that night, drank so much tea, just sat around and talked with kind of old friends and my sister was there and we just had literally almost had like a tea party, which was hilarious. And I remember being calm, calm, calm. And I got like three meters out from the stage and I could hear it. I was walking, walking, and then my heart rate just was like, and I was, I was like, oh gosh, here we go. And that was... <laughs> It, it's almost, it's an amount of people though, it's legitimately almost unfathomable for one person to take it in. Like I walked off stage and the whole team was just crying, laughing, jumping around, like just unbelievably stoked. And I kind of walked off stage and was like, so it went good, right? Like, hey, like, it, it was so, it's so much. And you know, if you imagine like, goodness me, like sensory wise as like an individual, as a human being, sensory wise to try and take on five and a half thousand people. It's, it's overwhelming. 
it just you just just there with your guitar and you know just singing with there with you and your guitar completely solo on stage and that's it's such an intense and such a rewarding experience would i say it's like innately relaxing it's not but that's not to say it isn't incredibly valuable it's just there's so much going on it's this really intense experience you're not sitting back on stage really relaxed you're kind of trying to and it's if you can imagine festival halls almost 270 degrees of people and it's surprisingly intimate the setting itself for that many people is you can almost see everybody but the people of melbourne and that particular show like it was just it was as unified and as intimate a big show i've ever played you know it was as good as anything i've ever done quality wise which is what you're really scared about when it gets to these bigger numbers is will you maintain the quality of experience for yourself and for the crowd and the answer was in melbourne was yes and if not it was more of an elated experience than ever which when there's unity with that many people that's pretty much like that's what's a good show for me and the the europe trip coming up is that going to be in front of crowds of a similar sort of size to that not as big as Festival Hall, but I mean, we looked at we looked at the stats today, and this tour is going to be three times the amount of people to what we did last time in yeah, Europe, wow. which is a, which is a lot. It, that's a, that's a huge growth, and some of the shows, much like Australia, I played a show in Yellingup that was a hundred people, which was really cool because it's this all ages show, and you've got families there, and it was like a really sweet, truly intimate show in an old wooden kind of shack kind of thing, and then playing shows like Festival Hall to five hundred thousand people had a really great, fantastic range of these shows and Europe's much the same. There'll be some shows I think are about 180 people and then probably Amsterdam and London are the biggest and then about 1,500 cap, which that's still to me like it doesn't matter when – that's what I try and say about it. Festival Hall, for example, you cannot almost take on how big it is because at the time it's just so overwhelming. But, you know, so 1,500 people is still, in my opinion, a big show and to play them internationally, to play – 1500 people in london or in amsterdam and it'd be sold out and to play similar numbers through germany that's yeah that's huge that's amazing you know some artists will you know never see that in their whole careers and here i am at 24 and i get to do that in the coming months like that's pretty incredible i want to go through sort of how you've actually landed in this place and then we'll come back to the music and and talk about you know sort of what inspires you in terms of the, the lyrics and writing side of things but you happy to, to wind back the clock please so where did you grow up? What was life like as a as a family and as a kid? What were your hobbies and interests and things like that? So I I grew up on the Sunshine Coast in Queensland. It was where I was where I was born, and there was a little town kind of just just south of Maroochee River where I grew up near Mooloolaba, and that was where I was born, uh, home birth by the beach kind of thing, and grew up homeschooled actually, uh, and didn't see inside a classroom until I was thirteen, and. So I grew up in a big family where kind of surfing and skating and martial arts and school were kind of all part of it. And from there, we moved to another little town just near Maroochydore. It's the kind of closest place. And I stayed there until I graduated. I went to school, got my marks, did my maths and science, thought I was going to maybe do dentistry or engineering or something with my, with my grades. And I'm still on a gap year, I think. Might be seven gap years in so far. <laughs> Haven't gone back. Um, and... Picked up a guitar when I graduated. Wow. So you picked up a guitar at what? How, how old were you? I was 16 when I first started playing guitar. So that's now, that's, if my math serves me, I think that's eight years ago. Wow. That's, that's not very long, is it? I mean, particularly considering where you are now. Yes. It, it's really flown by. And I think the only thing that I had a head start on was I was really into creative writing 
from about 13, I was doing some freelance journalism in various, you know, local surf magazines. That's kind of, I was really into writing and that's what my parents saw. And once I'd done my studies, they were kind of like, hey, he's like bought me a guitar and I was like, thank you, but I'm not planning to be a musician. It was like a thank you, but I don't know how to fully appreciate this because. Okay. So it was, it was just by pure chance that they. Pretty much. Yeah. Guitar. And being a lefty, that was, you know, it was particularly, it wasn't, I couldn't pick up right-handed guitars and play. As soon as I picked them up, I played them like a left. And so left-handed guitarist um and my parents bought me this left-handed guitar and from there the first year i mainly i mean but far out probably within probably within the year i put out an ep which one song i still play like i play as an encore in at festival hall you know there's a song called gone that i wrote that i put on that that was one of the first songs i wrote at 17 years old and um so during that first year when you, you were gifted the guitar and you started playing did you start singing at the same time yeah it just came i learned how to play stuff literally off youtube primarily because my little brother played guitar my dad played guitar but they didn't my dad didn't teach me too much because he was like look i didn't learn properly i just learned by ear and i want you to learn properly so here i went and did the exact same thing um didn't (laughs) learn properly but it just came really naturally that i would write because of my writing background would actually write my own songs that's something i was really interested in doing and hilariously actually that's when i first came to bondi was i was interning at a surf mag called stab mag doing writing is when no i way. first came to the, yeah. the one of the guys at stab he we're, we're in my uh apartment now in bondi he, he was living just here in is that six. right okay well, there you go yeah okay <laughs> small world yeah and so that's when i first came here and that was the same time it was really a really particular time in my life because i went from being in school to graduating working a music bar obviously not of age, but working music by collecting glasses for cash and getting a guitar, pursuing more of my creative writing in the form of freelance journalism and surf, you know, surf journalism. And there just was this time of real, I think, inspiration, particularly with the music bar, because I got to see every night these people doing, doing it. And it kind of instilled something in me, I think. And I worked really hard that year and was working a cafe job at the same time as working the bar and Slowly but surely, I you know I quit the bar just because honestly it's not good to be up that late every night. Particularly at that sort of age, I really wish I slept more. I always wish I sleep more, but at that age, at seventeen, I really should have slept more. And I kind of got to a point was like, well, I can work this cafe job and I'll try and get some shows, some little local cafe shows. And I was never prepared, mad. I was never remotely at a level where I should have been. Where obviously though, people around you, like friends and family, like would telling you you've got natural talent you can do something with this oh i think most importantly my parents so i did that for the first couple of years i'd like play cafes do a tiny bit of busking but more on the sunshine coast was playing different cafes and and working and working cafe making coffee uh, and i remember i was it was early 2013 could have been yeah when i when i last worked a job employed for somebody else that was at that point i remember the morning that i, I quit and I just thought, I'm just going to somehow do this. And my parents were really supportive in the way they said, well, got no mortgage, you got no kids, you got a car that runs. I had a Corolla at the time, this little Toyota Corolla, 1.8 liters unleaded, uh, Tiffany was the name. And <laughs> so therefore I had freedom and I had a chance to kind of go do it. And they're like, why, why wouldn't you? And so I just put it on the line Jumped at it. and just was said to myself, I'm just going to somehow make that work. And I think that's something I'd really encourage you know other people young and old to do like when you put yourself in that corner and you're like i've just got to make money to survive now and there's no there was no safety net it was just do it do you think the confidence in yourself and and also your parents 
encouragement, like how much of and, and teaching yourself how to play, you know, rather organically. Do you attribute any of that to homeschooling and sort of this, you know, unschooling, I guess it's called, and the some of the benefits associated with learning in that environment and learning a different way, I guess? Yeah, it's, I think by homeschooling, I'd say that I wouldn't have necessarily developed my like identity or willingness to be different. I wouldn't have been so comfortable about it if I wasn't homeschooled. I think by the time I went to school at 13, I already had, you know, I was already doing some creative writing stuff. I was doing, you know, competing in surf comps. I was doing all these different sort of things. I certainly wasn't run of the mill and knew I was a bit of a weirdo, but that's kind of been like a given since day dot as soon as I could comprehend that. But by the time I went to school at 13, I think particularly as a young male, I'd already had some form of like what was up and down for me, what what was important to me, what wasn't important to me. And that's really valuable. I really say hats off to boys and girls who from such young age are out of the home, you know, going to school. It shows you the resilience of human beings, I think, because I wouldn't have thrived. That wouldn't have been my thriving place, I don't truly believe. And so by being homeschooled, having that nurturing environment, a good family upbringing, good connection to my parents, and to the contrary of many popular stigmas, which are as correct as most, I was in surf comps, I was doing martial arts, I was in skate comps. That's one of the myths, right, about like the social Uh, social aspects. I mean, it's like it's valid in the sense that if people put their, if parents put their pre-learned or their experiences onto their children but you can do that as a school someone who's been through school as a parent and been through a, a normal education or otherwise and i mean if if anything alternate education is just going to open up for improvement to all education and that's what we should look for you know the best opportunity for young people to learn and that definitely being homeschooled and just i think probably the just having the sort of parents that I had primarily was definitely gave me a huge, a hugely advantageous base to go and do what I did. And music's one of the few things, and I say this to people, to friends when they ask, like, music's one of the few things where it wasn't about being the best. I just went and gave everything I had to it. I certainly wasn't the best, particularly at the start. I remember like I was, I was, like I said, very unprepared for a lot of situations. I was always having to do my absolute best and I could just scrape through where I was at so to speak like I just would do the show justice and that's been a very that makes you grow really quickly when you're always on that cusp of you just were prepared enough and you just pulled it off and then you you get to that new level and just like anything you'd know as well um with even with what you're doing here it just takes the hours and takes taking practice. that chance and practice and practice time and practice. nothing you, you can't you can't beat the time that you invest into whatever your craft is right five to nine shows a week was what I did I would I'd start on the Sunshine Coast like a Monday and maybe I'd drive to Byron. I'd do like a Tuesday and a Wednesday at a cafe, kind of like six till nine. Sometimes so you were grinding. Yeah, and then I would go on Wednesday, you know, maybe I would play a Gold Coast kind of busking gig and maybe I would be as silly to play on the Sunshine Coast on a Thursday because there was at the local bar, there was like a an afternoon drinks thing. So I'd play that session for a couple of hours and maybe I would, I mean, I remember I remember playing a busking show from, you know, seven to 10 or something like that on the street at on Lawson street at Mocker cafe in Byron. And I remember sleeping, waking up and being parked at the market because they, the road would get closed off. So being parked at a market on the Gold Coast at like 6am the next morning, trying to sleep in the car to then play the market show at nine o'clock. And then sometimes I would even drive back and play an afternoon busking gig. I was just, I was an idiot. I was well, just hellbent. 
was it the, was the drive behind becoming a better artist, or was it money, or at, at that stage, why were you doing so many shows, or or were you was it the enjoyment of the actual show? That's a that's a really good question, and that's something that I've definitely looked back on and gone at the time. What was I? <laughs> what was I thinking? It's certainly I think it's when you are extending yourself regularly and extending yourself in ways that are so challenging but so rewarding. It's addictive. I think here I'd done, I'd done work that was just grind. I'd done work. At least when I grinded on this, it was like I saw, I saw opportunity. I was as well having incredible experiences with people. You start to, when you start to release a CD and all of a sudden people might be like singing, singing some of the words or saying that song, I really connected with something in that song. And so all of a sudden there's like this, you're creating moments with people and that's so, so bloody rewarding. And I mean, I was still, still at the time, I was surfing a lot. Like I had an incredible amount of freedom. And then, you know, I bought a van at start of 2014. I bought my first van and I was living out of that van. And so therefore like it was, I could play two shows a day and still surf for four hours. Like I was just a madman, but living the dream. I, had, I had, I had everything I could have possibly wanted. I thought I was living the best life. That was like, I'm playing music for hours and hours per day. I can sustain myself on this and I get time to surf. It was like, it was that. That's what I thought. That's what I thought good living was. And so that being really content with that, it was. I mean, now there's a lot more of a plan, but I was truly, truly happy playing to twenty or thirty people. I thought that was just the best thing that could happen. And I, I mean, I guess playing to some of those smaller crowds though, over time, it's a great way to practice in front of small, small, small sort of crowds rather than jumping straight to to bigger events. But absolutely, you, have you ever had? you know, formal lessons or are you still self-taught to this day? The most formal lessons I've had actually of late in regards to like vocal longevity because I, again, have had some warm-ups but nothing formal. And so this was this last year was the first time I worked with a vocal trainer. And for some part it was to see if I could improve the way I was singing but mostly was for maintenance. It was about can I because you, you lose your voice, you do, your voice does get sore. And so, and you and now I'm, you know, turning 25 this year. And this is legitimately from about this point, almost the thirties when people have their vocal injuries. It's kind of like that hotspot zone for anybody you've seen that's had a vocal surgery, a vocal injury. It's this time coming up now. And so I definitely took it upon myself to go, how can I do the best for the best for my vocals, you know, long-term. But when it came to learning about how to sing correctly, it really did my head in. It, it 100% like I had to stop and go, okay, I'm actually not going down that path because it was taking away from what was a lot of fun about singing. That's not discrediting her work, who I was, the lady I was working with, because her vocal warm-ups and warm-downs, like the actual, those practicalities, I use them every, like pretty much every day on tour, sometimes twice a day. I'm doing her, her exercises and they are like, they've not only improved my singing, they've made my voice so much more comfortable on tour. But as for... I learned really quickly last year, you know, late last year, I was like, wow, like I'm never, I never want to get a guitar lesson. I never want to get another vocal lesson because it, it kind of gave me a structure of what's right and what's wrong. And I've never had that. And that's what I think has been a strength. Is you started to sort of doubt. Not doubt, not doubt in a sense, just I literally was like every small note that I sang was more about how I was delivering it or where I was delivering it from became a real focus. And I get really like, I really grip my teeth into that stuff and want to do the best job I can. And it just was taking away from the naturalness and I guess what has been unorthodox and very created like a unique sound for me. What's made me my own artist is not being 
delivering songs the exact same way as anybody else has been finding my own my own path. So it was really good. It was a really good experience to try to do these vocal lessons and the the maintenance side of them was invaluable. And I could I couldn't suggest more highly to singers anywhere of varying levels of degree of success in their career. It doesn't matter if you're playing to ten people a night or playing to a thousand. Seriously, learn your warm ups. You know, like learn how to warm up your vocals and take care of them because. Yeah, I've already at some points on certain tours lost my vocals. I had a hard time singing and it's like... That's scary. Yeah, it, it is. It's um and painful, you know, and that's... Uh, so, yeah, look after those vocal cords. <laughs> so from from busking and jumping around from, from the Sunshine Coast to Byron, the Gold Coast, how did things then unfold from then sort of to, to where you are now and, and playing at much bigger shows? I think a really... Why don't we use Sydney as an example? I think that's a really good being where we are. You know, being in Sydney today is a really great. You actually told a great story about Sydney, which you might when I was at your show recently. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah. Well, I'd love, I'd love to tell that story. You know, because that's I think that thing's a, a valuable one. So I started in Sydney. The first place I played was in, I was in Surrey Hills. The first gig I ever played was at a pizza place on like a ten dollar pizza night. I was doing support for a friend. I remember being really upset when I finished the show because it was just like a terrible PA and people actually came to see the show and it was like the worst environment you could play to people. And I was like, oh. you know, it was like a, a frustrating experience even at, you know, seven, you know, 18. And I was like, gosh, like I wanted, and that really clicked. Those couple moments was like, okay, that's why I got into house shows and backyard shows because you could, you might play to less people, but the quality of the experience and the connection you get is unparalleled. Um, so I started off this, this first pizza joint, I couldn't tell you where it was. It wasn't, it was just it was just a drinking pizza bar. Like it's it's fine. It just wasn't a place for soft emotional teenage boy music, you know. Uh, <laughs> and it started there. I then was doing house shows, you know, South Coast, Central Coast, um, around here. Did a house show in Manly. Never done one in Bondi yet, but I did. Maybe that's something we need to do sometime, right? Um, we'll do it up on the roof. Perfect. And <laughs> did a house show in Manly. That would have been 2014, I reckon. Then in Sydney. I jumped to some smaller venues like I kind of did. The next one was 100 people and then the next one was 300 people and then it was Oxford Art Factory, which would have been 2016. And then man, I've said this to a couple of younger artists lately, you know, who've asked kind of where did it start. It's, it went from 50 people. Like those shows are so pivotal because the connection you make is unbelievable. You know, there was this one night in Sydney in Cronulla where – I was set to play a show at a venue. They didn't have a rain option. It was maybe like 70 people, which is quite an awkward size because 50 people is manageable in a house. But 70 people and upwards, it starts to get like a lot of people to be in the living room. And it's a real party. And <laughs> so I'm due to play this venue. It gets raining. They don't have a, they don't have an indoor option. I was like, okay. I call my buddy, Matt, at the time and say, hey, mate, like, can you help me out? He ended up being my tour manager for quite a while. And and goes, yeah, I'll call around. So we get a yoga studio. I was like, perfect, right? This is even better. And we set up in this yoga studio. Everyone takes off their shoes. Everyone's sitting on the ground. It's like a perfect vibe. About to start playing. The lady who owns it flips her lid, like after offering and saying that we could use it, flips her lid and says, like, if you don't get out in 15 minutes, I'm calling the cops. So, and I'm like gutted at this point. I'm like, right, like here is the people trying to come see a show. I've changed locations. Then they'll come upstairs. They're ready to hear, hear me play and can't play. So I'm going to get money out from the, you know, cash cash machine down the road and to 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 refund to refund people yeah literally yeah. it was like i'm just literally gonna get cash out and refund people you know that i maybe at the time used something like eventbrite i was setting up my own events my but you know maybe 
myself or friends were helping us get people through and the just door. Just like marketing through social media and literally just through like Instagram. I would set up house shows by asking if, who could host a house show in these following areas. It's pretty awesome. It was really like super, like super. I don't know how quite to describe it. It was as community based involvement as you can possibly imagine in someone's career. Because as example, when this happened, I go, guys, we can't host a show. I'm sorry. And someone pipes up from the back. We'll have it at our house. <laughs> everyone looks around like, really? And like, yeah, it's two blocks over. And so people are like daisy chaining my gear down the stairs. I'm talking like pretty much everyone who's come to this show, bought a ticket to the shows, helping get the gear down the stairs. There's like random people in my van because it's raining, man. It's torrential rain. So people are like bunny hopping it into the van. There's people in my van helping put it in there. Everyone, we drive the van over. Everyone runs over down two blocks over into someone's living room. And we set up again and we finally play the show. And that for me was like, Oh, the feeling that's, that's, that's a feeling of like, wow, these people really got my back. And that's how I think that's the honest truth of a lot of my early career. And even now, as much as numbers have grown is that that was the basis that people like I asked and people would actually help. And that's like a pretty, that's a pretty cool community experience. That's a pretty, you look at, you look in, look at people and society in a really different way when you have that sort of stuff happening. Mm. I think the last show before this one at Roundhouse that we were just at was Enmore and that was uh, Enmore Theatre and that was late 2017 and that was an, an absolutely fantastic show. I mean, but it really went from that, like Roundhouse was a couple thousand people, you know, uh, Enmore was maybe one, you know, 1,500 people and prior to that, maybe the biggest show we did prior to that was like, I feel like 800 people. Like that's how, that's how the jumps have been. Over the years, it was literally 50 to 100 to 300 to 500 to 1,000. Yeah, yeah. and, and Melbourne, a very similar story. Like Melbourne was 50 people in a coffee shop, then 100 people in a cold backyard. It was like legitimately three degrees and then 200 people in a different backyard and it literally got to zero degrees. And then two nights at a small venue in Melbourne and then two nights at the Gov, which is like 800 cap, and then three nights at... 170 Russell, which is 3,000 people across three nights, and then Palais Theatre, then Bloody Festival Hall. Like, it's been incrementally over years, but the man. work's been there. Like, yeah, what, what I love yeah. about that is for any, you know, aspiring artists that are listening to, to see that you can sort of look at you now and look on social media, and it would be easy to, to think that you, you just had natural talent and just made it and on social media became really big and popular and started selling out Festival Hall. But it wasn't too long ago that you were playing in someone's house in Cronulla. Like, <laughs> no, like literally a couple of years ago. And I think, I think what's really important about that, really, really important last two aspects is, one, very few stories are legitimately overnight success. Like they just, they just aren't. They may look like it, but most of the time there's been years of, of working really hard. And what I would say secondly is that I do not envy people who have that amount of success more quickly than I have had. It's already been quickly for me, but if it took every every learned experience, every mistake, every show they've ever done to make me prepared enough to do Festival Hall or to do Roundhouse. Roundhouse was legitimately probably the best show I've ever played in my career. It was like the best I've given to a crowd, the crowd quality, our interactions. Like it was probably the best show I've ever played. It's a, it was a benchmark night for me. And it's taken every single experience to be remotely prepared for that. And even, you know, 
festival hall, what I walked away with learning after that show, mm. like how it's prepared me again. Yeah, you're going to look back on that in, you know, four or five years' time or even a year's time. and I just don't envy. I just don't envy it coming any quicker because that's like that would just be so hard. You, you ha- you're happy to have some experience when you get to that point. And also, you know, like maybe it's easy for me to say because I haven't hit a, a plateau in my career in terms of it's been, it's grown. That's all it's done so far, whether it be slowly without Radio Play, with Radio Play, it's just continued to grow. What I think, so maybe it's not maybe it's not my place to say, but I'm happy that there's still room to move. I'm happy that I'm not playing my biggest shows ever at 24. Wouldn't it be cool to be doing that a little later? Wouldn't that be cool to still have these new experiences? So I think, and plus, and like the intimacy and the quality of shows that you get when you play to that magic number of 50 or 100 people or 150 people, that you almost can't replicate that. You just can't. Like it's it's an experience you should want to have. It's it, it's like no other feeling when you're truly sharing those moments with an amount of people that you can you can get it with each other. You know that's that's so much more valuable than playing to a lot of people. Do you, do you ever want to just walk down the road and start basking on the street? Yeah, I still I still do it. You do it. <laughs> I, I, I I mean yes, absolutely because that's the simplest. That's like a, a really pure, simple form in the sense that. It's it's not the logistics. It's not these huge huge months leading up to shows. It's you get your guitar, your car, help your friends. You know, pull some stuff out of the back of the wagon and set up the play. And that's why in Byron, I still in Byron Bay, I actually still do busk because it's you get that experience with people. You're on the street. There's nothing between you and the people, and that's wow. You know, like it's literally often when we're still busking now with friends. There's not there's not even foldbacks. There's not even speakers facing back at you. So there's nothing between you and the people, and that's. So I, I plan, I plan, I hope I can still keep doing busking. What's it like now when you when you're busking on the streets? Like compared to two or three years ago? <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's it's it, it's hilarious because people are stopping and they're like, "I landed from Ireland today. I was hoping that maybe you'd be in Byron, and now you're playing. You're right here." Like people just losing it that it's even a possibility. But to the credit of a couple of years ago, I mean, there was nights that were just. Just you couldn't even like nights where I'd be playing and it'd start raining and I was like kind of undercover but not undercover and I just again being a madman would just keep playing. I was like, no, nah, I'm not going to stop playing for this weather. We keep playing, keep playing. And I'm talking one night, people ran out of the cafe and started dancing in the rain. You think I'm joking? Like it's a scene from a movie. And we had nights where there'd be like a hundred people in the car park outside a cafe, dancing and going cr- absolutely wild and singing at the top of their lungs. Like there was, there was those moments. I think now. It's just like I certainly wouldn't be like I po- if I'm going to do it, I'll post about it kind of 10 minutes before I'm about to start and there'll be a lot of people that will turn up and then there's been a couple of times where I've bailed out because you're playing with friends and then to give them the right attention, I can't stand there next to the gear with my friends because then it's just on me. And so then there's been a couple of times where I've legitimately picked up my guitar and just walked off, <laughs> which is a different experience to say the least. <laughs> now, in terms of the, your, your actual music, is there are there any songs – to to you that ha- that holds sort of greater importance in terms of the lyrics or the time that you release them. That's a great combination of the importance and the time you release them. I'd say, I'd say there's a song called "Simple Things" that I think was one of the first tracks that really I found my sweet spot. I found a spot that was like really original to me. You know, you, you have your influence as a young artist, and I still have my influences today. But it was it was my own song truly, and the honesty of the song, what it was about, and it was about it was about the time I was in, it was busking and watching people walk past of all different sorts of life and sharing these moments with complete strangers and 
and often meeting people with really similar value sets, which was really cool, you know, about caring about the ocean and enjoying those experiences in a lifestyle. I felt I was really at that time falling in love with the East Coast because I was driving it so much and I was exploring all these little pockets by myself and I was on this real, you know, I was committed to music and that was like this real finding yourself experience. And so that song, that song then I think resonated with people really particularly. That song stood out. It was really nice playing it in Sydney actually. It was the first time I played it on the whole tour. So oh, really? Sydney and that okay. was a real standout. Is that something while you're touring, are you, do you plan all the songs before you jump on stage or sometimes do you just feel like throwing something in there? We, we plan them but I do actually want to make an effort after that night to make an effort to play the odd song every now and then that I wasn't planning to play because it's, again, then it makes it a very unplanned experience and a very, um, I guess, honest one because it's, it, you do have your flow of your night. You have to just to give people the, the right kind of show. But, yeah, I look forward to doing it more. I think after Simple Things was probably Runaway. That was the first song that actually stood out above. I felt like what I was really lucky with is that people listened to all the songs off my album. People were backed the whole album. It didn't matter. And that was what was cool. It was 50 people would come to the show, but they were singing most songs. Now, when you saw in Sydney, like, yeah. people there singing pretty much from start to finish. Yeah, like, yeah. it's unprecedented. As an artist, you don't often have that. It's one even the songs. older stuff. Yeah, yeah even the it just, you know, since Runaway was one of those songs that it wasn't even, I, I actually had it. It was used in a surf ad and the reason that it was used in a surf ad was because I was like, this isn't my best song. I was like, I'm going to give him like a good song, but I don't want to give him like my, my, <laughs> like my best song. And then I release it and it became very evidently like the song that was most, most clicked with people, which I thought was hilarious. Runaway was a real standout. I mean, Love Me Now probably was a standout because it was the first song that got heavily played on radio. Um, you know, last year was the, it was the song that kind of, I mean, it, at Festival Hall, like like some of the guys on the team were genuinely covering their ears because that's how loud the singing was. Like the sound guys literally were plugging their ears because people were just belting it. So that song really sits out. And I think lastly and really importantly, Laps, Laps Around the Sun, the title track, has, if anything, like even grown to be the most important song, which is really, you know, that's such a, that's a feeling because that's a really personal song and a song that's, you know, with a huge environmental message. And the fact that in the scheme of, writing songs that would connect to people that was a personal song that was kind of for me and so the fact that that's become a song that's really been for everybody is like that's a pretty um a pretty special thing i think it's a telling it's a telling of the times i think yeah that people care yeah and want want songs that they can actually sing about that have some content that's yeah yeah and and we're going to jump into the sustainability i guess in the ocean side of things just shortly and, mm. and i mean in that song you talk about ocean plastic and and things like that i saw take three the at the roundhouse yeah i actually had take three on the podcast not not too long oh, ago fantastic. Silver, okay yeah, great. So we, we we chatted about you know ocean plastics and microplastics and all that sort of stuff so it was great to see them at your event yeah quickly though before we jump diverse i guess into sustainability from the on the music side of things we touched on being independent at the start mm. What, why did you decide to be an independent artist? And, and what does that actually mean for anyone who's listening that may not have heard that term before? And how does it sort of compare to some other options that artists may have? Really, really good question. Being independent is essentially, is a kind of, kind of a wide term really, because there's, there's massive independent labels. There's, there's plenty of labels that are huge and have multiple artists that aren't major labels. Major labels is typically like one of your, you've got Universal, you've got Warner and Fire. I should know more than this, but they're two majors, right? Okay, there we go. The big boys. The big boys, right? (laughs) And who've been longstanding in various, you know, for various decades in various different fields. But 
being independent to me pretty much means like owning your songs, actually having full control and rights to your songs entirely. And that's what I sent, I guess, in a sense, when you're signed in a traditional deal that you don't have. I mean, so I have, we set up an independent record label called Common Folk in 2017. Uh, we formed Common Folk Records and that was a step forward. That was kind of a big picture view for me. I did consider signing to, I mean, I, I considered signing to a couple of different major options that we had. There was a really cool independent one based out of North America. And then it was just a kind of what if, you know, could we keep doing this? Could we, why, why can't we do the best job? Why can't we figure out how to do the best job, you know? And so the ethos became, it's mostly, maybe I'm just a control freak. Maybe that's it. Um, but it came down to having control over saying what you wanted to write, when you wanted to release it, the companies you want to work with, all those things start getting kind of blurry if you've signed a traditional major deal. And that's a lot of that is your identity. A hundred percent. And I mean, that's just so closely tied. And it's not, I mean, it's not innately wrong to be signed, you know, signed to a major, completely independent, signed to an independent label. Like none of, none of them are wrong. You just have to do what's right by your career as an artist. But for me, I think it's been right to make an example of you can be independent. And that means there's, there's plenty, there is examples. You just have to look for them, you know, but to, if you want to have a long, I think if you want to have a long-standing career, I think it's important to be involved in your career heavily in what's going down. And for me, the identity and just unparalleled, like if I was, I just couldn't do it. If I had to write songs about stuff I didn't care for and work with people I didn't like and not have any say over that, that just wouldn't, it just doesn't sit with me personally. Therefore, I just didn't go down that road. And I'm really happy to be at least a question mark, at least people when they get to a point in their career and go, Will I stay independent? Will I sign to a major label? They can at least go, well... Here's a case study. Here's a case study because, I mean, like look at someone like Chance the Rapper who's undoubtedly probably the biggest independent artist in the world in terms of like his impact and what he does and how far he's come in the career, who he's worked with. Like he's... That was for me. Like I looked and I was like, he's independent. So why the bloody hell can't we try and keep working towards something like that? You know, and it's because you have to be half mad. That's a prerequisite. You have to be half mad to... <laughs> To well, wanna, take, yeah. take me through what was involved in you sort of just said we we set up common folk record but i'm imagining that there's quite a process there you know when you when you decided we're going to do this what was next it was mostly growing the team and having the right people because primarily at that time it was my older sister who's my manager and still is my manager and my dad who was helping out on all accounts with you know with accounts and legals and so it was then saying okay if you're not using somebody else's team then we have to commit to growing our own that was probably and is the most challenging part of it because we did, you know, we took on board um, my auntie who's an absolute light of what we do and such a such a powerful woman and in her work and we took her on and we're like, well, I hope we have enough, hope we have enough hours. And then within three months we needed somebody else. Like you just, we just, growth pains is what we face because forming the record label was also the time that released Love Me Now which got slammed on radio and then released another, you know, released Laps, which has, you know, also gotten slammed on radio and had, you know, a huge, a huge reach, released this world tour and 37 shows sold out on this Australian NZ leg before we started. And so it's just been a mad scramble. But to the credit of Annika and, you know, to Kaiser, to Tim, to Rhea, to the internal team 
who aren't on tour, that's been handled exceptionally well. And the tour team that we have grown for this tour has, again, handled everything exceptionally well. And I think for the most part, it's growth pains because if you're not going to employ other people to do the work, like a third party, then you've got to do it yourself. It doesn't disappear. Mm. And that's been, that's been it. And I guess there's a lot of risk. I mean, at the start when you're hiring people, making sure there's enough money coming in, overheads are going up. Absolutely. Scaling. And are you, like when, when your song plays on radio or on Spotify, are you, do you earn money from that or is the, main, is the main source of income actually getting out on the road and playing in front of crowds? It's incredible that we have access to music for the price we do now and legally it kind of makes, why, why would you legally download anything now when it's so easy with Spotify and Apple? Just know there's not really a point anymore to illegal downloads, yeah. whereas when you were in an old school kind of setting, there was a, lot of, there was a whole much higher rate of illegal downloads of music, right? What's come from that is the, I would say the value has definitely changed. The, the literal amount the artist will make from, big or small, will make from their work has changed. And that is why you'll see, I can't say for sure, but I speculate it's why you see every man and their dog touring a lot, every man, woman and their dog touring a lot at the moment because touring has now become undoubtedly the backbone of your career. And I certainly, I mean, touring in Australia has is undoubtedly been what's made it possible to tour Europe, to tour America, because that's the other thing I think is really important about not belittling signing to a major label is that you might get loans. That's the whole point is that you get the potential to actually go and do those things because you don't have to save up that money yourself. And so you do, when you're independent, you take mm. all the risk yourself. You're managing all that cash flow. Yeah, it's, you know, and you've, so that's, you know, that's for sure, but but like I prefer, I prefer to be responsible. Like I prefer that we are as a, as our team at Conflict. I prefer that we are responsible for that because in music, the biggest secret is is that nobody actually knows what the heck is going on. It's moved so quickly. The like the industry is growing so quickly in in so many different ways. Like how could you have forecasted the impact of streaming in the last decade? You just couldn't. Like it just it just what it didn't exist a decade ago, right? So like it's changing so quickly. Your best bet is to is that you don't actually really know what's going on, but you're going to give it your best inkling of common sense and work hard. That's pretty much, I think, the music industry at the moment. And and being a good performer, a live a live performer. Absolutely. And, and again, that's like some people are studio artists and like that's fantastic, but it, the live side of performing things, grueling as touring is, has been what is really personally satisfying and been, I'd, I'd argue, the most important part of my career for sure. At the at these shows, you spoke earlier about sort of nerves and, or more so, just getting yourself relaxed and having a tea. Are there other things that you do? Do you do any sort of mindfulness practices or physical activity, or do you get really nervous, like ever? I don't get. Okay, so the Byron show, for example, where I felt most unsettled, it was the last show of tour, and like, as in, I couldn't even do the vocal warm ups in the back room. Like, it's just a, it's a small venue, and it was like a very loud one, a fantastic venue, may I add, but. For example, there wasn't one quiet space to meditate. There wasn't any space to stretch and there wasn't um, certainly it was loud enough that like just I literally locked myself in the bathroom to try and do my vocal warm-ups, you know, before the show. So that's kind of unsettling. As for nerve nerves, like crazy hard out nerves, not so much because I've seen over the years that people just wanted me to go up there and be me. If I just, that's that's what people want. So that's like a very comforting thing. But I for sure... I think the best nights I play is when I've 
done some writing or done some stuff that's outside of the performance where it's like another focus in the day. I generally like to do a bit of personal writing and, you know, whether it's whether it sounds ridiculous, but whether it's just focusing on the sides of the business, it does not just make it the one focus being on stage at the end of the day, you know, that being the only anchor. So doing a bit of stuff that's outside of playing the live show, when I do do my yoga routine, do exercises that I've kind of got going, like got a pretty good routine at the moment. In the back room, when I do those and spend the hour or hour and a half doing that, that's always makes for an incredible show. You just feel better and you've, instead of you've been sitting all day, you've been in a car. So when you go and do that, you just, any human being is going to feel good. And for sure, I practice definitely meditation has become a big part of touring, like a big functional part of touring and meditating before like these big shows, even if it's for five minutes, like that's, yeah, that's been really important. It's particularly on the last tour, I think it's made a big difference. And you seem you seem very grounded for for someone that's you're 24, right? 24 and playing in front of you know such huge crowds. Have you have you ever been a big drinker or partier? And, and what what what's holding you sort of you know so grounded? And 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 also you know speaking about such really important issues like the ocean and the the Great Australian Bite, which we'll go get into. But what like where's this this sort of ability come from to to keep yourself balanced i saw it would have been probably 2015 was one of the first times i was playing splendor i was playing this little side stage which was epic i love playing on these hippie side stages at different festivals i was playing this side stage and i had this moment i've just been pushing it like as a probably reoccurring theme in my life is just pushing it too hard with touring like just physically being too exhausted and i remember being feeling like I didn't have a manager at this time, Matt. I didn't have a manager or a booker or anybody at this time. Like, no, my sister was on board kind of thing. It was me managing myself, booking myself, driving myself, setting up the shows myself, everything, right? And I remember going, wow, I'm here playing to 200 people and nobody knows how lonely I am. It's like this real, like, whoa, okay, something needs to change. And so hilariously, that was not not long after Annika became my became my manager um first you know like manager and tour manager and then you know slowly became just the manager now she manages everybody but at that time i got a manager i started to tour with people like you have and you have to you have to get it to a point where you can afford to do that right so there wasn't like another option but once i got the opportunity it's like right that's what i'm going to do get into a healthy exercise you know and make sure you're surfing as much as you can kind of routine which i was when you're really really busy as you well know as we know as young adults like that does happen life if you don't keep those things as a high priority, they do get put to the side. And I'd say the other pivotal moment I felt was I was doing that run of theatre shows in late 2017 and I just didn't feel like I had much left to give to people on stage. Like I kind of was like, here are these people, they're here to see me and I feel like a shell. Zapped. Just, you know, and so, and that's why, I did, you know, 2018 I took 10 months off touring and I just learned really early on, I was really lucky to have a couple really awesome moments where I just knew that I could play the festival, I could do this, I could have that. And if my internal conversation and if my time with family or having just normal, you know, like normal basic human requirements, which is good, healthy relationships around you, time out in nature, if I didn't have those things, it just meant nothing. I've played in front of a thousand people and it's meant nothing. And so that's been to be so young and to know that so clearly at those times was, you know, has shaped all shaped so many of my decisions because I've been like, well, yeah, it'll be cool. It's cool to play Festival Hall, but not if I hate being on tour, then it sucks. 
And so it, I've always been really clear with myself that the amount of people I played to was a small part, an incredibly small part of what was what was my purpose. Mm. It was about it's incredible. Yeah. Um, it's, it sounds like you've you've just been slowly peeling back the layers of getting to know yourself. That's, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's that's been music to me. It's so, so much about learning who you truly are and what you care about, and that's what you can do through music and through songwriting. This year was the first year in four calendar years that I've had a drink. Wow. Up until this year, I hadn't I hadn't had a drink in four years um, since 2015. So that was really hilarious. I've had two two nights of drinking since, and I can't say that I think I think it'll probably be four years till the next one. But I've got haven't got a plan with it. But it was it just I was never I could never drink much. I wasn't like I wasn't a particularly good drinker, man. Like I was like a two or three drinks kind of drunk person. Like I was I was not like I wasn't keeping up with the boys many part right. And, <laughs> but I just thought and still think that it's hard enough to be on tour and be as healthy as I'd like to be. Like I'd love to be able to, maybe it's a crazy, you know, a crazy idealist thing, but I would love to be able to come off tour and be fit enough to go surf big waves. Again, if I'll attain that every time I finish tour, I don't know, but I want to be fit and healthy. It kind of comes hand in hand. Like you've seen the show. It's energetic. It's, you have, I have to be present. I have to be energetic. I'm by myself on stage. I'm connecting heavily with the crowd. Like it kind of requires that, that much of me that, drinking i just didn't miss it because i think that often really really when you break it down a lot of those things that we do are to alter your reality for a moment to get out of your reality and so if you just change that reality a little bit which i did change the way i was touring the people i was touring with my general health levels my fatigue levels i just didn't miss it i just didn't care to but the first drinks i had was the hottest 100 day I surprised everyone. I came to the bar, you know, I just finished. I was playing a show that day and said to my friend, oh, I'm like, you know, if you're going to get me a beer, what would you get me? And he was just, they were, it was almost, it was just such a laugh because some friends who I've known for three years, who have toured with for three years, hadn't so much as had a beer with me. So it was like this really hilarious night and um, we'll see. We'll see. I, I just, I can't imagine, to be honest, I, I can't imagine drinking. I'm just not a drinking party yeah. kind of guy. Just It's just not really for me. And it's not for everyone. I, what, what I like though is that it is a great example for anyone listening that is aspiring to be a musician because that there there can be a bit of an association with playing at festivals and a lot of drinking. You know what? That's actually, I think that's actually something like you want all this, like I think it's really important and maybe opportunities podcast, like I have, I've worked my but off like and chosen not to party chosen to play the extra show chosen to try and look after myself to the best of my ability at those given times to give everything at those shows it wasn't an accident for sure i've been lucky but i've taken those lucky moments and i would attribute most of it to just having a worth a work ethic that people just you have to be mad to do it but that's that's a huge thing to not i didn't party i didn't drink i didn't write myself off and that's not because I'm above it. I just thought that it was of higher value to be healthy and to have to pursue these things in my life, for sure. And my dad would probably, if I was like, if I got into drugs, my dad would probably flog me. <laughs> He's done martial arts for many years, so I just I get beaten. <laughs> I've only beaten once or twice, even when we've had a fight. So, you, you spoke just then about being present at the show and talking, and you do you talk a lot between the the songs, which I thought was great because it it, it offers something really unique to the people that come and, and show up to the show. They get something more, you know, not only are they coming and enjoying you live, but they actually are walking away getting to know you, you know, at a deeper level. And 
One of the important things that you spoke about was the environment. Why is the environment important to you and, and is that something that's been important to you and sort of been instilled in you from your early sort of childhood ages? I think just growing up surfing, like I was surfing before we could remember, that was like an, a, a thing that my parents thought was really important was that they spent time by the ocean. That's how they wanted, you know, we rented beach shacks along the ocean. That was the thing. We didn't do team sports or anything like that. It was We went surfing and we skated kind of thing, right? And so that just really set me up for when I think probably the first time was when we had a poorly propositioned desalination plant that was supposed to go out the front and it would affect the island that was out the front of the town that I grew up. It would affect the island. It would affect the wildlife there. It would also affect the quality of the water. This is around Marich at all. Yeah. And that was one of the first times that like I attended like a, you know, a community meeting about it and was like, no, nah, like that's, that's just not cool. My parents, I wouldn't say they're innately like they're not your typical hippie or environmentalist at all, but they encouraged us to, to learn as much as you can and to understand, to take on, to look at different perspectives. And so just across the years, like I've been like, like I used to get, like I used to get the takeaway Starbucks. Like everyone's at a different learning state, right? And But I think over the years have learned and gone, okay, and changed the habit, learned this, changed the habit, learned that you can through music bring people to attention of stuff. What an incredible opportunity to be a musician, to have, to be unsolicited, to not say be, the most educated to not have the degree, but to be able to have thousands of people where you could direct them to those said people who are educated, who have the information. That's, it just doesn't feel good to be in the ocean when you can't, it doesn't feel good to be on a beach and see it covered in plastic. It doesn't feel good to be in the ocean and be picking up plastic out of it. It does, you know, there's an oil spill that affected the East coast, you know, several years ago when we were growing up and I remember not being allowed to go in the ocean because there was still too much oil and the way it smelled and the way it was on your feet. Like it's, it just doesn't feel right. Like yeah. on a really basic level, you just would, you just would much prefer to be in environments. No, nobody gets a kick out of going to the beach and seeing ciggies, you know, ciggy butts everywhere. No one gets a kick out of being in nature and seeing various rappers and various different things being left behind. No one actually enjoys that, you know? And so for me, I value those places so much because they've inspired my songs. They are the natural places, the natural states of the world help me bring back, bring myself back to those natu- the natural state. You know, when you go back into the ocean for several hours, you do, you come out different. The world's a different place. You know, so it's important to have, if anything, it's important selfishly for me to have those things when I'm not touring. <laughs> if anything, it's a selfish endeavor that, you know, but it also happens to be a part of our lifeline. So I think it's fine that it's a little selfish because it's a bit selfish for all of us really. In terms of your day-to-day practices, you mentioned just then Starbucks, are there certain things that you sort of try and focus on just to do your part when it comes to sustainability? I understand. I think it's keep it simple. Like I think it's simple actions that you can have the most impact on, like one that's very obvious, you know, which, you know, in, in Bondi and particularly East Coast, you know, a lot of part of the world now is like having your keep cup, if you can just have your keep cup. Probably the thing that's been, I'd say, the most, my most used and most pivotal and like it's the strangest one time I've bought a plastic water bottle was when I was I was having an allergic reaction to antibiotics so I was throwing up everything I possibly could and um and we were I was still having to play a show the following couple nights so that's when we bought you know two two or three 1.5 liter bottles of water you know um and that's when that's in like an I was in a hospital when it's in a medical situation that's okay you can have that lenience but aside from that, a water bottle, man, particularly now with the fact you can fill up your water bottle almost anywhere, incredible. 
I think having a water bowl has been one of the strongest things, having a keep cup. There's still so many ways you can pull back your, your mm. impact. Just you know? little simple things. But I think you start with the simple things because they're principle. They're like, right, if I put in a touch more effort, I mean, I read this fantastic thing on a wall at a cafe saying it's amazing, it's considered more convenient that we would pull oil out of the ground to then have it turn to a, get to get it to a factory to then manufacture it into a fork that then gets driven to a cafe, then gets used for five minutes, then gets thrown in the bin. It's amazing that we consider that more convenient than bringing something of our own and washing it. And that was like a real wow. Yeah, because it's not it's it's not convenient when you think about it. No, I mean that everything's travelled. And I think I think though it's it's important that it's like you start with those simple things because they open your eyes to it. Because once you do, and I've seen that with friends, particularly friends who are on tour who just haven't necessarily had the peripheral vision for it, but now they have started using the keep cups or have been aware of some of the implications of of various takeaway items. It's an amount of everyone. Mm. You got to meet people where they can learn. Yeah, you know? we just I've want to start learning. Too. People get people start to connect more with it, and you know. Start when you start with the plastic bag or the keep cup, your consciousness goes up. You start becoming more aware, and look. Then you look at other things that you're buying and snowballs. Uh, absolutely, and I think it's. I think it should be that principle is like learning how to to do a little less harm, and then all of a sudden it's like wow. Because if you if that's the idea that you're just going to learn how to minimize your impact, that carries across so so many ranges. It's much more pragmatic mm. to be able to look at something and go, it's an idea, like. Try to minimize your impact. Okay, well, you can apply that in so many areas of your life. You can apply it on how, where you buy your clothes, how often you need to buy your clothes, if you have a tote bag with you, if you need the plastic bag is another alternative. It just, mm. you said it, it snowballs. I think a really important thing is it's not about being perfect, right? And we are, oh. we're, we're born into this world that has become reliant on fossil fuels and yeah. there's plastic everywhere. So it's not about being perfect and I think, you know, I flew down this morning from Burley yep. Heads, Queensland, down yep. to here to Bondi, right? So that's there's fossil fuels right there, right? But it's it's not about being absolutely perfect. And if we look at like a bigger issue, for example, the Great Australian Bite, which you've spoken out about, yep. why, why is this important? Why What's going on down there? And why is this of significant importance in terms of just getting – the, a, the public more aware about what's going on yeah. and B, trying to stop it. What you touched on then was really great that it's about if you can do it most of the time in terms of that you're not going to have a 100% rate. You can't consider yourself either I'm not going to attempt it or it has to be every single time. But you have to have middle ground and there has to be, like when I talked about it, when I got plastic bottles because I was just so sick that there was just not another option, right? That's a really important one. I like as well how you touched on that you have to be honest. And I sat on stage, I'm like, here I am. I've got a carbon footprint that's much bigger than most individuals will ever have. I've got a guitar that's cut down from wood. I've got strings and a metal that have been pulled out of the ground. I think where it's important is to look where you have alternatives. I think that we need to be less hard on, for example, when at the moment there's not electric airplanes. It just there isn't a technology yet. At the moment, the best way to run airplanes at the moment is fossil fuels. Sorry, I know it's hard to accept, but it truly is. It's like the most pragmatic thing we've got right now. There is other options in how you buy your clothes. There is other options in in how you, again, on little levels, look for, don't give yourself a hard time where there isn't an alternative. Look to where you can make a difference where there is an alternative, an alternative product, an alternative way of doing things. And the Great Australian Bite, that's 
Uh, why is it important? Let's, let's start with where it is. Yeah, okay, there's, fantastic. There's, there's yeah. a lot of international listeners. Perfect. Yeah, no, that's a really good state, place to start. The Great Australian Bight is a huge expanse of coast and land that kind of covers from South Australia to Western Australia. I've driven the Nullarbor three times so far. It's a fair drive. It's the longest straight. You were driving to kind of get from one of the, the last towns really to the next town is kind of three, eight to ten hour days of driving for people who are on the other side of the world and unaware of the geography. Look up the Great Australian Bight. It's this huge expanse of incredibly rugged, just, I mean, like colossal cliffs dropping off into the ocean, like, and oceans, I mean, the surfing down there is crazy, you know, and wildlife and a sea that's super vibrant, that's very, um, that is quite healthy, that's home to a huge industry of fishing and tourism. Uh, Great Australian Bight is kind of one of our really untouched places because it is just it is like pitting yourself against it as man is hard work. It is the storm systems. It's just a wild place, Julie. And it's very, I think it's really of national importance to Australia as a very wild, huge open expanse of land and sea kind of thing. You know, the Great Australian Bight right now is and has been for many years under threat of drilling. Hilariously, I don't know what the correlation is. I don't know, I don't know the scientific correlation, but it seems where there is a place that is vibrant with let's say, vibrant with a super healthy ocean, you know, um, with huge fish stocks, for example, if you want to say call it fish stocks, like those same places usually have really great oil deposits. I don't know what the correlation is, but usually That's a really- interesting. You see it, I mean, because, you know, so this Norwegian company is the most recent uh, energy company to apply for deep sea drilling in the Great Australian Bight. Now, interestingly, spending a lot of time in Norway, my ex-girlfriend is Norwegian, so I spent even time up in the Lofoten Islands, which is for our Scandinavian- uh, listeners it's i mean it's one of the most beautiful places in the world it's crazy and they've just decided to as the norwegian people to not drill up in that area to keep it for a for its tourism b for its fisheries and just for it being one of the, a really wild untouched beautiful place um, that's really of national importance so the great Island by the surrounding coast is some of our biggest most important contributors to to our fisheries and to our tourism industry like it is of a huge passion and i say that almost I know it sounds crass and again, like overly pragmatic, but I'm saying that firstly, they're drilling as deep as people have ever tried to drill. So the BP horizon spill that happened in the Mexican Gulf, like that is a calm sea. When I've surfed, like, I mean, you just, you just have to, you almost just have to go and look at pictures. You have to go there and see it for yourself. The sort of oceans and, and the storms they are subject to along that coastline are like something we often don't even see here on the East Coast. They are unparalleled, huge storm systems. So to try and claim that there is any level of, that you have any level of say that you can safely drill in an ocean like that is a falsity. It is just simply inaccurate. And so this company that wants to try and drill as deep as they've drilled before ever in the Great Australian Bight risk up to four coastlines, four states of coastlines in Australia stretching from Esperance through to Port Macquarie, which isn't a sign, it, it, it isn't, that isn't our, that isn't our oil spill projection. That isn't, that is the projection made public in the application by the company. If there's a spill, this is, this is like the minimum damage that'll be. Yeah. Possible. This, and you, you're going to presume they're going to want to, they want to give the minimum. They're going to give like the other maximum. So they're saying from Port Macquarie. And if, again, if you and as, as Australians listening, Port Macquarie to Esperance is 
it's it's huge. It's it's as it's more of the coastline I thought that could even possibly be affected. But that's what's so crazy is with that side of the coastline, with the currents that pour through there, with just the way that ocean is, it will stretch that far, and that would. This is what gets to me outside of like you know like the economic argument, which is entirely valid. The environmental argument, which is entirely valid, even if someone under goodwill or honest practice think they can clean up a mess like that it's just not possible like it's just not you know and that's what's that's what's hard because it's just if you you only need to go look at coastline for a second particularly the most affected coastline for a second and they the reason why there isn't houses there the reason why there isn't docks there there isn't shipping ports there is because it's too wild so imagine i mean if there's a spill there it would be how how are people going to access it you just i mean the, the capping the capping block to, to block a leak essentially the equipment to do that is kept in singapore that's and their projection is it's 15 days to get there so within that 15 days the amount that that would affect i just gen, i'm saying i genuine there isn't technology that can possibly protect an oil spill in that sort of area i'm not i'm not, i'm going to be so pragmatic as to say that there is calmer seas around the world where you could practice drilling more safely i'm not con, i'm not suggesting you do that i'm saying there is literally areas that are much more a way lesser probability of a oil spill happening i just it's of scientific evidence that the bite is one of the most high risk areas you could drill in terms of an oil spill it is one of the most high risk areas you could drill in any ocean sounds like the the australian government could could look at norway and and look at what they've done with their own their own and, and in terms of protecting them Oh, and it's, I mean, I talked with, I talked with a Norwegian surf community called, you know, um, Surf Norga. They do this, like, they're like essentially like the surf mag and the surf, surf voice of Scandinavians. And I explained to them, I was like, that kind of is like our Lofoten. That is like our Lofoten Islands. It is the home of a huge amount of tourism. It is our wild place. And Norwegian people, um, again, having pretty close ties to a lot of, a lot of parts of Norway and, and traveling a lot of country, they're so adamant about protecting their nature. It's a part of their a part of the actual legislation in government to leave a place better than you've you've come onto it. Like they have a huge respect for their environment, which is why now with huge oil deposits up in Lufferton, they've decided to not drill. So even that should be a marker that they've decided to not go ahead and do that. So then to come and do it here, I mean, what I think needs to be made aware so that the general public outside of, I mean, environmentally, 85% of the species are found nowhere else in the world. That you find the greatest native to that area, and t- entirely yeah. native to that area, it is home to one of the deepest reefs in the world. It is, you know, it's got the Great Southern Reef. It's a pre- protected marine park. It's an it's a protected marine park. Yeah, but I know there's not try and really mean that it's a protected marine park. It's home to you know home to a nursery for a lot of different endangered species. So environmentally, the arguments there, the fact that it also would affect not only that area but all the Great Ocean Road into the southwest of Western Australia, all the way past through Tasmania, all the way around the corner. You know, down the south coast, all the way through to Port Macquarie, past Sydney, maybe add, you know, like environmentally, there's all the arguments that stand, but even on a level where $117 billion per annum in fisheries and tourism combined is what we earn. It's incredibly great for the Australian economy. It's circular, it employs local people, it's the lifeline to a lot of the different towns and places we have. Tourism is incredible because it's, you know, a low impact industry. So you risk four states worth of that pool. Of Australian economy of thousands and thousands, thousands of jobs. So I just think that people need to care legitimately on not just environmental level. This is also something that needs to be cared about for the sake of the Australian economy, of our economy, that a part of it that does help with our stability, that is employing, is truly employing Australians. I think 
which is why I am excited that it is because a lot of a lot of arguments are just environmental and that should be enough because on this podcast particularly you get that right like that should be enough but I love that at least with this argument there is a huge economic impact Mm. and that will have will resonate with other people will resonate with people outside of the environmental concerns and that's gonna we're gonna need everyone's hands on this you know so what is the process? What when is there a date where the government will make a decision? And if people are listening and thinking, "Wow, what can I? What can I do? How how can people help?" So the twentieth of March is the the date that public commentary is allowed onto. They have thankfully released a document. If I can, if I pronounce it correctly, Nope Center, who are like the governing body that approve and disapprove these drilling applications, they will have public commentary until the 20th of March, which is just a couple of days away. Um, and you can comment against the actual document. I've, I've just recently put up a post that may actually highlight on on my page on a couple of key points of why I am opposing this application. Places like Greenpeace have this opportunity on their website as well. Patagonia are doing a huge part. Basically, I think the most important thing is don't just share it. It, what's going to count is calling, for example, if you called your local office and said, this is of importance to me, what's going on with this, and make it a conversation with politicians, they care about signatures. They care about phone calls. They care about letters. And there's Those, an election coming up. And it's going to literally weigh on – it's going to weigh on that. It's If it becomes a national topic, it will become a part of the play. And, again, we've got to play dirty, and that's going to be a good thing. I think, importantly, comment on Instagram if you want against, like, Equinor's page, but I don't think it's nearly as effective as actually taking the five minutes to comment against the document because I think there's actually going to be an unprecedented amount of public commentary. So is there an actual document that people need to fill in or they just comment on there's a, social media? There's a document that you can you can find the link through my page or if you look if you go onto Nope Sammer's you know application, you can go on to so I just I want to direct you to Greenpeace to like Patagonia to my page. I'll put the link to your page and Fantastic. all of these other ones in the show notes. And I'll exactly I'll give you the link to the actual document. So you basically got to fill out you know, your name, your last name. Um, hope they don't take your address. And then <laughs> they've got options. You can comment against each section or you can leave other comments. I'm encouraging people to at the very least leave an other comment. I've listed my general concerns, which are truly that is like an inaccurate environmental consultation. No stakeholders have been made aware. It risks parts of Australian jobs. Like I've kind of gone for the most pragmatic that is going to get people listening. Yeah. Okay. Great. And you know, and so um, that's what I think is going to be effective because I think that we're in a time, and maybe I don't know if you agree, but we're in a time where people do care, and a lot of lot of noise, a lot of dust is kicked up, but it doesn't necessarily translate into an area that means something in political climate. And that's what we need to try and do is get people get the political climate, you know, ears up and realizing that Australian people and a worldwide community are not interested in this. It's not. It's just not a part even remotely of a transition into renewable energies. It's not even a small picture of that. And we need to, you know, giddy up as Australia particularly. We need to get towards that. I know? completely agree because it's very easy just to to share something and build the awareness. But this needs people to actually take that five minutes and fill in that application or comment. Absolutely. And I mean, and I had this conversation with, you know, a conversation with my father who's, you know, it's really great debating with him and he's like just for the sake of it in terms of to see where there's holes in your argument. And I think that even in the sense, so look, we are transitioning. This is not going to happen overnight. We can't just jump to renewables. We have become reliant on it. But we are consuming as all around the world, we are consuming more of our unrenewable fossil fuel energy than we can keep up with. Therefore, that regardless of how much of it we keep pulling out of the ground, 
there is still going to be more demand than there is product. And so it's going to continue to get more expensive. So as it is, if we want to, as individuals, as if we want to, even as people who are driving fossil fuel cars for the next X amount of years before it becomes accessible to have greener cars, for example, we as whole countries and as around the world need to transition into renewables just for the sake of this period so then it doesn't become impossible to drive said car. So then you, so we can truly transition in a way that's realistic. I mean, it'd be lovely to change it overnight, but we're not going to be able to. But at this rate, there's no amount of fossil fuels we can pull out of the ground to sustain what we're doing. So we've got to get smart. We've got to actually move to an energy that is sustainable. When it comes to using social media and as a platform, right, and you're using it incredibly to speak about issues like this, the Great Australian Pride, big sustainability issues, do you yourself, do you like social media? What, what, are, what are some of the positives or negatives that you've experienced with using it? I think, you know, in this day and age, there's, there's always that bat- battle of being able to balance it you know, using it to its strengths because it has obvious strengths, but then obviously also not being letting it take over your life. Oh man, what's the what's the struggle? I think something's come up in, in topic a lot lately. Human connection. Think like, for example, like we can have a conversation. You can look me in the eye. That's becoming less common. Like when our communication is hugely engaged in online or app form or just a digital form it's just you get good at what you practice don't you you get good at at communicating in those forms and so i think it's really i mean wow what a, at least wow look at look at me as a person i feel like because of my homeschooling because of just my age i still could see both sides like i had the i had the nokia you know i had the nokia brick and it was yeah, great yeah. you know it was a great thing i was a big boy lasted a long time <laughs> run and never ran out of battery and that had snake that had snake on had it. snake on it yeah and, was, yeah, it was the gift of the world. It, it was, was great. The perf- it was the peak. It was the peak performance of phones. Do you remember when Snake still phones. went from Snake One to Snake Two, and you could go through the wall? <laughs> Do you remember that? Yeah, like, I mean, yeah. So it's a great time to be alive. And um, <laughs> I think you what you touched on then the challenge is to like anything that's powerful, and you have to admit social media. So, so, social media is innately powerful in a pure sense, but to use it for good and to connect people, and to perhaps as you're doing here bringing these conversations together to a wider audience. That's all you can try and do is you can, you've got to use it for good. And that's pretty much like the common theme of humanity is we get things that are powerful. And there's this look at, look at movie narratives, look at the reality is that you constantly seeing this balance of using it for, for good and bad, so to speak, or it using you for good and bad. And so I think I'm always trying to be, on it within myself, mostly with my personal practice of how I use my phone, how I communicate and how much I use it. That's something I just think most personally that everybody needs to look out for. And I certainly feel like I need to. Otherwise, you catch yourself looking at videos of screaming goats. You're like, why am I here for three hours looking at screaming goats? Yeah, you just get stuck scrolling. But you can can do, and that's it's been made possible to be independent as a musician. It's been made totally possible. It's been possible to have these conversations because of social media has been made possible or at least have a platform for them to be heard on a greater audience. That's, I mean. It's given people control, you know, given people control back that, you know, and almost taking a bit of control away from major media. I, I just absolutely, because there's like an unsolicited, you can't stop 
that many, this many people posting about an issue. It's just not possible. You can delete some comments, but you can't pull down everyone's Instagrams at this point. You know, like that's not possible. So my view on it is, I think probably similar to yours, you've got to use it for as much good. And for me, the value of it is almost completely independency to how much reality you create from it in terms of if you can, and I have plenty of awesome stories of social media is connected to people. And then I'm having a surf with a family, you know, with mom and dad and the two kids who happen to be in the laps around the sun video, you know, and I get to meet them. And then all of a sudden we become friends and it's like this. So I think that the value of it is almost entirely weighed in the reality, like the good you create in reality from it. And there is that to be done. And that's what I hugely believe in with music. And you just have to talk about this actually a day with a guy called Ash Grumwald. It's, we've never been faced with the issue of dependency never been faced with it so close to home literally in our pockets like every part of the day but with every challenge we have the opportunity to properly address it so we we face a dependency thing right now and it's going to teach us a lot as multiple multiple generations it's teaching me a lot and so I think- true i mean like it is it, it can it can be and it would be a, a, essentially an addiction for a lot of people right oh, absolutely i mean the, as in you can't and you can't it's not lack of individual strength they are designed to be addictive it's designed to be encompassing it's not designed to just be a hop on hop off like these the instagram's got people working around the clock to try and <laughs> to try and keep you scrolling <laughs> i mean something i wrote down last year was exploring is completely different to scrolling a feed of people's photos based on things you've already previously liked so you have to differentiate you have to differentiate from an incredible thing we got like social media and make sure that you're still having your quality family time, your time out in nature without your phone, getting a switch off time. That's our challenge right now, a switch off time. I personally feel for my life anyway. Mm, beautifully sure. said. Now, parting note, how would you like to be to be remembered as as an artist, but also as a as a as a person? Wow. How would I like to be remembered? Jeez. It's more like how I'd like to be known. Off stage, you know, how how is how is your value set? I think I'm not a fan of people being incredible writers, incredible performers, incredible musicians, incredible actors, and being a poor human outside of that. So I just would like to strive to try and practice being a good human outside of outside of being on stage because it doesn't count for much if you hop off stage and you're, you know, and you're not doing doing anything particularly good for your family or your friends or the world. So that's uh. That's how I'd like to remember is for how I was known, not just for what I looked like on stage. Well, mate, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. I'm sure it will buy many of the, the listeners, so I really appreciate it. No, thank you for having an opportunity. There's some of these topics that I have never had the chance to like speak on in long form, and so to have that today and to have you know to share the conversation with you is a real treat. I really appreciate it. I look forward to uh, getting you back on the show in a couple of years' time when you're no doubt, selling out 20,000 people crowds and whatnot. Yeah, we'll see how it goes then. We could, we'll have, maybe we'll see how the chat goes then, hey? For sure. Cheers, mate. Thank you. Wow. Ziggy Alberts. What a grounded, humble fella. And only 24 years old. Somehow I think we have only seen the beginning of Ziggy's career. I can't wait to see the music he brings out in the future and also the effect that he has on his growing community. He's really fast become one of Australia's leading young role models. 
If you enjoyed this episode, Ziggy and I would love to hear from you on social. Whack up a story and tag us so we can hear what you thought. And friends, don't forget to jump over to Equinor's Instagram at Equinor, E-Q-U-I-N-O-R, and tell them what you think about their proposed drilling in the Great Australian Bight. And check out the show notes for links to more information about their drilling plans and what you can do to express your opposition. Time to sign off. Have a beautiful day wherever you are. Thanks for tuning in. See you in the next episode. Do you see the ways that we've grown apart? I don't like it at all. Do you see the ways that we've gone too far? Drifting off of our course. And do you see the ways that we let plastic cover the ocean like snow? But snow it always melts with the seasons change and the summers up and once go water. One was all before. Oh, how much is left to burn? <laughs> Lately, I've been worried. I don't know where to it is that I do belong Lately I've been too busy to smell the bottle brushes Chasing laps around the sun And I sat here and cried So running from my eyes wondering How the fuck will I end up with you? And you just laugh and smile Shake your head and remind me that all good things can come true Just left to learn Do you see the ways we've gone too far? We need now more than ever before To come together, put our differences apart Stop drifting off of our course Our reefs just like a trees along the shore And if it knows to help the half of what we're breathing for ourselves Our upside on the ocean floor Oh, how much is left to learn Left to learn. I said, Oh, oh, how much is left to learn?